Well, Father, uh, it's great when we see you moving in your people. And we just ask that you do it more and more and more through every single person here. Help each of us to discover how we can be a part of advancing the kingdom of God in these different various ways until you come back. We ask that you would equip us because we know if we try to do it in our own strength, it isn't going to work. But with you, greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And so come and equip us, empower us, equip us to be able to uh, not just face whatever it is we have to face in the years to come, but to uh, just uh, excel because of your power, your grace, your goodness. Come and fill us now. Come and teach us now, especially about the end times. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn to Revelation chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 1 through 8. It's the last book in the Bible. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Someone will bring you one. It's our gift to you. Going through Revelation verse by verse, and we're at a new point in the book We're entitling this The Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse, so I thought we'd watch a video clip to prepare us. You unlock this door with the key of imagination. Beyond it is another dimension. A dimension of sound. A dimension of sight. A dimension of mind. You're moving into a land of both shadow and substance, of things and ideas. You've just crossed over into the Twilight Zone. All right, you are now entering the end times zone. This book seems a little difficult at times for many people. It's a strange, the imagery and so forth that we see in it. Uh, so I thought we'd start out with that. But I do think that it's not as difficult as people make it out to be. Uh, although we are now entering into the end time zone in chapter 6. Chapter 6 through chapter 18, we see a series, actually three uh, groups of sevens, where we have seven seals, seven trumpets, seven bowls, all depicting the same spiritual war, but from a fresh vantage point. Later cycles concentrate more and more on the more intense phases of conflict and then on the second coming itself. There are also several interludes, and so how do we understand these things? I think as we go through the book, It will make more sense. Our passage here, though, if you remember, chapter 1, a vision of Jesus. Then chapter 2 and 3, seven letters to seven contemporary churches of the first century. Chapter 4 and 5, a vision from heaven of God and of Jesus. And now we're entering into the last days. Let's go ahead and read our passage, chapter 6, verses 1 through 8. Then I saw the Lamb open one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like, a th- like thunder, Come. I looked, and there was a white horse. The horseman on it had a bow. A crown was given to him, and he went out as a victor to conquer. 
When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. Then another horse went out, a fiery red one, and its horseman was empowered to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another, and a large sword was given to him. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there was a black horse. The horseman on it had a set of scales in his hand. Then I heard something like a voice among the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, but do not harm the olive oil and the wine. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there was a pale green horse. The horseman on it was named Death, and Hades was following after him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, by famine, by plague, and by the wild animals of the earth. If we compare this scene here, uh, what uh, Billy Graham called the four horsemen of the apocalypse, we can compare it to Jesus' teaching on the end times in Matthew 24, and it actually goes in the exact same sequence. I'll actually, I'll have, are we not up there? Oh, I'm sorry, my bad. Uh, I will uh, have the, the chapters in Matthew that correlate with this where you can see that he's clearly talking about the same events, the same end times, what Jesus called birth pains. If you remember, birth pains are what happens when someone is pregnant. Uh, the later the pregnancy becomes, the closer to the time of the due date, the pains come stronger and stronger and closer and closer together. These things that are mentioned in Matthew 24 as well as in these four horsemen are things that happen throughout the world uh, throughout time. But what Jesus is saying is when you see these things happening closer and closer together all at once and stronger and stronger, you know you're getting close to the end of time. And so... We see the similarities. And what we see in our passage is it's going to get bad. You know what? This is way too negative. Let's just forget this. And I'd just rather tell you a story, okay? Let's forget the, the end time stuff here. I got this modern way of showing, you know, illustrations. And I just thought we'd, instead of the end times, let's just have a, a happy family. And, and these are the, the three horsemen of the good times, okay? It's not four because I didn't have four horses. But, but you know, three horses. You know, isn't that, whoops, oh. See? Or should we just go by the Bible? Yeah, you're probably right. Let's just go by the Bible here. Okay. Uh, we'll, we'll go back. It's going to get bad. People don't like to hear that. They want to hear happy stories. Everything's nice. You do this, and you're going to, you know, die in your sleep, and everything's going to be good, right? Now, listen here. Things are going to get bad. It will not be easy for God's people. But remaining faithful to God will not only see us through, it will be the most exciting time to be alive if you are prepared. So that's why we're going through the book, to be prepared for whatever might take place if it's coming soon or for whatever difficulties you face in your life 
here and now. So let's walk through it. Verses 1 and 2, we see the first horse, the white horse, which represents false religion. Some people see this and they think that the white horse represents Jesus because in chapter 19 you have Jesus coming on a white horse. But there are similarities but great differences as well. So this horse, just like the other three horses, clearly represent bad, not good. The white horse of Jesus comes in chapter 19. So we want to look at this white horse, which represents false religion, just as Matthew 24, 4, and 5 teaches. But before we look at that, it's important for us to see at the very beginning, Jesus is in control. Did you notice how it says, it just says, Then I saw the Lamb open one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come. Jesus is the one opening the seals, allowing these things to take place. God is in complete control. You see, there are two opposite reactions to the book of Revelation. One is, it's too complicated, so I'm just going to ignore it. It's a very popular view today. I'm just going to ignore it. It's a whole book in the Bible, in the New Testament. In fact, it's the last book. You'd think it's probably important. So that option is not good. But the opposite reaction to that is one of fear. We see these horrible things taking place. We go, oh, no, what am I going to do? And we live in fear. Listen, God is in control. That's the point at the beginning here for us to see. It's the point why we had in chapter 4 and 5 that great vision of God on the throne. God is in control. Fear And anxiety, really that is the sin of unbelief. So cry out to God and say, you know what? It's going to be tough, but life is tough. But God will see us through. These are going to be the most exciting times because Jesus is in control. Now back to the horse here, okay? This first horse, the white horse. Verse 2, I looked, and there was a white horse. The horseman on it had a bow. A crown was given to him, and he went out as a victor to conquer. I'm suggesting that the white horse represents false religion, and Satan loves religion. You're saying, what? Yes, Satan loves religion. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 13 through 15 specifically teaches that the devil himself dresses like an angel of light. He doesn't care if you're an atheist or really religious just so long as you don't know Jesus. Satan wants you to get caught up in religious stuff. Uh, Ray Stedman, in his book on the end... He says, the Apostle John wrote at the close of the first century, even many, now many antichrists have come. They went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. Now, he's speaking from 1 John chapter 2. The term antichrist does not indicate someone who is openly against Christ, 
such as an atheist or a pagan. Rather, it is a person who subtly undermines true Christianity by substituting a false and deceptive Christianity or religion. An antichrist is a counterfeit Christ, a false messiah. Christ is the Greek form of the Hebrew word messiah. And so we need to recognize this, that false religion is what Satan wants. And the ultimate person this would represent would be the Antichrist. Now, this religion could be a religion without rules, which is very popular today. You know, I want the religious feeling, but I don't like all those rules in the Bible. I have some very good friends in Colorado who absolutely love Jesus. And they have served and loved Jesus for years and years and years. But they bought into this wave of thinking within Christianity that said doctrine doesn't matter. And says, you know, people emphasize doctrine, and that's just all head stuff. And I just want the heart and the feeling. And they really did love Jesus, but they taught their kids that idea. Both of their sons embraced Wicca. Because Wicca is a religion that has the feelings but doesn't have the rules. And that's the tragedy of going by heart without any head. We need the truth as well as the love. And a religion without rules is a false religion. The Bible has a way. God has a plan for us that he cares about us. He really has our best interest in mind. And so we follow him. But the opposite of that is also true, a religion of rules. And that's the idea of salvation is somehow by your works works-oriented, that I can somehow earn my salvation, my relationship with God. Some even uh, use the total oxymoron, uh, grace and works, uh, which are the opposites of each other, by the way, if you didn't know that, okay? So to say that salvation is by grace and works is like, that's the craziest thing I've ever heard. It's by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ. And yes, God does have a plan and a way of life for us that is for our own good. But a religion of rules, that's called legalism. One particular religion that's very legalistic is Islam. And Islam is on the rise. This passage, it is possible that this passage is referring to Islam. You say, how do you know that? Well, when we look at this, the only mounted archers, because you notice on the white horse he had a bow, the only mounted archers of the first century were the Parthians. And that white horses were their trademark. Iran is modern-day Parthia. Iran has the belief of the 12th imam, uh, the rest of their, their Shiite Muslim, uh, uh, Sunni Muslims have the idea of the Mahdi, but they're, the both, they're both the same figure, this person in the end who's going to come and bring about Islam as the world, uh, world religion. They also believe Esau or Jesus is going to come back with him. It's possible that the Mahdi and Esau are the, the Antichrist and the false prophet spoken of in 
as we go on later. We'll look at that and see that possibility. But here we see this idea, um, certainly in the first century, that's what they would have thought of was the Parthians when they heard this and read about this. Okay, so Satan loves religion. God loves relationship. We need to see the contrast of this where God wants us to be at. God loves relationship. Now, it is a relationship with God, which is a unique relationship, unlike any other relationship. God is our Father, but He's also our God. He is our friend. He's also the Lord. It is not a relationship of equals, but it is the most intimate of all relationships with our God. And he calls us to relate with him and have fellowship with him and each other. We're in on this grand plan of God, okay? So the white horse, though, represents false religion. Uh, We see that we need to see that truth and love need to be combined together for the true religion, which is a relationship with God and with each other. There's the first horse. Don't be fooled by him. The second horse, verses 3 and 4, we see the red horse represents war. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, then another horse went out, a fiery red one, and its horseman was empowered to take peace from the earth so the people would slaughter one another, and a large sword was given to him. Here we see, this coincides with Matthew 24, verses 6 and 7b, Uh, There will be wars and rumors of wars. Peace, though, will be gone. Now, interesting, another little side fact. Some people interpret the book of Revelation as referring to the first century. They believe they're called preterists, if you want a new term to write down, okay? Preterist views believe that all of the book of Revelation refers to the first century, not the end times. Uh, People like R.C. Sproul even embraces that view. Okay, this verse disproves that because in the first century, what did we have? We had the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. The the time was very peaceful for the people because of the Roman army, the Roman roads, and so forth. It got rockier the third and fourth century A.D., but in the first century, very peaceful. Therefore, this cannot be referring to that. Daniel Aiken speaks of our time, or at least the 20th century. It says, World War II General Omar Bradley once delivered an Armistice Day address in Boston, and this is what he said. With the monstrous weapons man already has, humanity is in danger of being trapped in this world by its moral adolescence. Our knowledge of science has clearly outstripped our capacity to control it. We have many men of science, too few men of God. We've grasped the mystery of the Adam and rejected the Sermon on the Mount. Man is stumbling blindly through a spiritual darkness while toying with the precarious secrets of life and death. The world has achieved brilliance without wisdom, power without conscience. Ours is a world of nuclear giants and ethical infants. We know more about war than we know about peace, more about killing than we know about living. This is our 20th century's claim to distinction and to progress. And it has only gotten worse in the 21st century. 
No, true shalom, peace, can only come through Christ. Uh, he, Aiken quotes another uh, statement. He says, during World War II, Albert Einstein helped bring a German photographer to the United States. They became friends, and the photographer took a number of pictures of Einstein. One day he looked into the camera and started talking. He spoke about his despair that his formula E equals MC squared and his letter to President Roosevelt had made the atomic bomb possible and his scientific research had resulted in the death of so many human beings. He grew silent. His eyes had a look of immense sadness. There was a question and a reproach in them. At that moment, the cameraman released the shutter Einstein looked up and the cameraman asked him, so you don't believe there will ever be peace? No, he answered. As long as there will be man, there will be wars. And I would say, according to the Bible, it will only get worse. Because true shalom can only come through Christ. When Christ came the first time, he brought about peace, that we could have peace with God, that we could have Peace in our souls because our sins are forgiven and we are in right relationship with God. And he promises us that he's going to come back someday. And that's when he is going to bring peace to the world and wipe out all wars and where they'll turn their, uh, their weapons of war into instruments of farming, it says in the prophets. The Prince of Peace. True shalom can only come through Christ. So the red horse represents war. The third horse, the black horse, is famine. Verses 5 and 6. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked, and there was a black horse. The horseman on it had a set of scales in his hand. Then I heard something like a voice among the four living creatures say, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, but do not harm the olive oil and the wine. This represents famine because a denarius, by the way, is uh, one day's wage. So what he's saying is a quart of wheat, which is how much it took to feed one person, would cost a full day's wage. If you had a family, you had to resort to the less quality grain of barley to be able to barely feed your family. It's a famine. He says, but do not harm the olive oil and the wine. That's kind of interesting. Some scholars thought that that referred to uh, it's not going to be that bad of a famine. But it sure sounds bad if it takes a full day's wage just to feed yourself. So that's probably an inappropriate way of understanding it. No, what he's probably saying here is that there is going to be a difference on how this affects the rich and the poor. Poverty's effect on the rich and the poor will be different. The rich, because, uh, let me read another commentary on this. Paige Patterson speaks of this. He says, "Some, some commentators also believe that vineyards and olive orchards tended to belong to wealthier people, while the wheat and barley fields would be more common throughout the land. Accordingly, the passage suggests that the lifestyles of the wealthier inhabitants of the earth are less affected by the early judgments of the tribulation. They'll all eventually feel the pain. But poverty's effect on the rich and the poor take place. Now let me say something about this because people, the Bible teaches us we're supposed to take care of everyone, right? 
Some people have suggested that the way to do that is a redistribution of wealth. Take from the rich, give to the poor. I would suggest, and I'm not the best economic person at all, but, uh, but I would suggest that that's kind of silly to take from those who know how to use money and give it to those who don't know how to use money so that nobody has any money. That's the way it seems to me. But the opposite is also going to wreak havoc because everybody's sinful and selfish and greedy. There really is no solution except Jesus. When we try to see politics or education or this or that, the thing that really works is Jesus. And so, because of greed, corruption, and so forth. So how can Christians be prepared for a financial collapse, for a coming economic famine or whatever? I would say, be wise financially. As Christians, we should be wise financially. We have some excellent examples of Abraham, Solomon, and others. We see the Bible teaches us some ways to be wise financially. Be generous. You thought, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> if there's this poverty coming and this famine and stuff, I should be hoarding everything, right? No. <laughs> the Bible specifically clearly teaches in Proverbs, be generous. This is being wise financially. Second, work hard. Did you know that laziness is a sin? It is, even even for millennials. <laughs> and don't be greedy. Some basic wise financial, and this, I suppose, is another financially wise thing, tithe. The Bible teaches us to give 10% to the local church. If you're interested, if you want to see what the Bi- how the Bible teaches this, I have a paper on the organ back there that you can look at that brings shows how tithing is a New Testament principle. We give 10% to the local church. Above and beyond that, we give our our offerings and our giving to other good and needy uh, things like Compassion International and other things like that. But This is important for us because Malachi actually gives us a promise. I want you to turn to Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 12. Because if tough times come and you decide, hey, I better, you know, that's the first thing that's going to go is the giving thing. We need to recognize that that sounds very worldly, but the world is wrong. Okay, this is the way God thinks, and God's economy is far better. Look what it says in Malachi 3, verse 8. Will a man rob God? Yes, you are robbing me. You ask, how do we rob you? By not making the payment of the tenth and the contributions. That's the tithe and, and offerings. You are suffering under a curse, yet you, the whole nation, are still robbing me. Bring the full tenth into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house. Test me in this way, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing for you without measure. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not ruin the produce of your land and your vine and your field will not fail to produce fruit, says the Lord of hosts. Then all the nations will consider you fortunate for you will be a delightful land, says the Lord of hosts. 
This is the one place where he actually tells us to test him. We're not supposed to test God in any other way except this one here. He allows us and even calls us to test him in this way. And so it's a matter of faith, isn't it? I'm supposed to give. And then God promises to take care of me. That's what he says. Don't rob God. And then trusting God in community. Together. Acts chapter 4, 32 through 37, beginning of Acts chapter 2 as well, gives this principle of living in community. Some people think it's communism, and it's not, okay? That's not at all what we're seeing in this passage. But what we are seeing is that the people took care of each other. They were knit together in a strong community, the church. So many people today in our individualistic mindset say, I can just be me and Jesus. But the Bible says, no, we're to be together, committed to a local church. And so we see this trusting in God and community, this tremendous community in Acts chapter 4, brings us to Acts chapter 5. You ever read to Acts chapter 5? You know, that's when Ananias and Sapphira got killed for lying. Remember that passage? You're thinking, why would they get killed for lying? That just seems over the top, okay? Well, I think there's a reason. This was a critical time of establishing the bond of community with integrity, openness, and honesty as essential components to that community. Ananias and Sapphira, they were giving, but they were lying about it. They were threatening the community. They committed a breach in that community, and God sent a lesson to show the importance of community, that we need to be together, open, honest together, people of integrity like this. Now, I do also believe Ananias and Sapphira went to heaven. It's, it's, it seems they were true believers. God just needed to make a lesson there, okay? And we're going to get to heaven, and we're going to talk to them, and then we're going to, yeah, that was me. Sheepers, that was dumb. You know, that's okay. So, but the point is that at that time was so critical because it was, that community was threatened. Trust in God in community. And then finally, the green horse. Some translations call it the pale horse. The Greek is green. I'm not sure why they don't just say the green horse. But at any rate, we ha- I, maybe just because you've never seen a green horse. Mm, I didn't have a green horse. I just had a brown, a gray, and a brown. Okay. Anyway, okay, the green horse is death. Verse 7. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, come. And I looked, and there was a pale green horse. The horseman on it was named death, and Hades was following after him. Authority was given to him over a fourth of the earth to kill by the sword, by famine, by plague, and by the wild animals of the earth. What we see here, first of all, is that murder will rise, bringing chaos all over the world. We're seeing this in big cities, especially Chicago, uh, where uh, one example that this birth pain is revealing that we are getting closer to the end. And you wonder why. Why is this happening? A better question is, why are we not as bad as we could be? Most people don't think about that. But if, according to the Bible, in 1 John chapter 5, the whole world is under the sway of the evil one, 
According to Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 3, we are all, before we come to Christ, spiritually dead under the slavery of sin and Satan and under the wrath of God. That sounds pretty bleak. You'd think that the world would be worse than it is, not better. So why? I believe that 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 give us an indication of this. This passage, this is the passage speaking of the Antichrist at that uh, time, what he calls the man of lawlessness in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And it says that there's something holding back the Antichrist until he is removed. Now, some people think that that's referring to the Holy Spirit and that the Holy Spirit is going to be removed from the earth. That is silly. I'm sorry. Okay? Because in chapter 7, and I can't wait till we get there, we're going to see a huge revival takes place in the end of time. You can't have people getting saved and revival without the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry. Okay, the Holy Spirit is there. But what he's referring to, I believe, is that the Holy Spirit is keeping that spirit of Antichrist down. It's what theologians call the common grace of God, that he is helping us not be as bad as we could be. But in the end time, for a short time, he's going to take his hand off. And he's going to allow humanity to go crazy. And that's the murders, the deaths, and all this stuff that we're seeing here. Uh, he goes on, he says, disease will be a part of this, killing millions. Uh, in uh, J. Ramsey Michael's commentary, he says about death and the plague, the fourth writer adds to the first three the awful prospect of disease as well as the bearers of disease and desolation, the wild beasts of the earth. In effect, the statement that they were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague summarizes the activities of the second, third, and fourth writers, not merely the fourth. So it's going to add this murder to it, but it's summarizing all the things of the first seals that are just going to wreak havoc on the world, and disease will kill millions. Dr. Paul Schultz assures me that zombies are not realistic. But plagues, like in the movie Contagion, are realistic because we're so interconnected as a world community. It's amazing that they're not more prevalent, these uh, plagues and so forth. And so we see all this, but I just want to say again, don't worry. God will protect his people. This is the, uh, a principle we'll see all the way through the book of Revelation. God will protect his people. We don't have to respond in fear. Look at Psalm 34, verses 4 through 8. A tremendous promise. Psalm 34, verse 4. David is singing this song. I sought the Lord, and he answered me and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant with joy. Their faces will never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and rescues them. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the man 
who takes refuge in him. As we take refuge in him, we're not only are we protected, but we can taste and see that the Lord is good. Glimpses of his glory, tastes of his goodness are available to us to sustain us in no matter what we might have to face in this world. God will protect his people. Tough times are coming. God will judge this world. Uh, we're seeing some of this, the permissive will of God, where he allows things to happen. Later, when we get to the bulls, we'll see the active will of God bringing about his judgment. But he will judge the world. In the end, there will be no place for wimps in the church. Fence riders will have to make a decision. Persecution is coming. But as we will see in chapter 7, so is revival. God will protect us, and we will see the greatest outpouring since Pentecost if we stay close and remain faithful. Together, it will be the most exciting time forever. Now, I want to make a prediction. This is not a prophecy, okay? Just my thoughts that it could be this way, and I could be wrong, all right? I think the millennials are going to bring in this revival and you're saying no way you make fun of them Larry I think that's precisely why God will use the millennials because he'll have to get all the credit and glory okay so millennials listen he's gonna use you This is going to be an awesome time if you're open to this. He can use you for his glory, and I get to be a part of it. So let's thank the Lord, praise the Lord, but be prepared for whatever might happen. Pray for the millennials. Let's pray. Father, I, I think back when I was 18, 19, 20 I was an idiot. And you are good. You are amazing. How you can take such raw material and turn it into such good, to do such incredible things, Lord. We seek you and ask for our young people. That the people in this church, the young ones, that they would be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that the older ones would pour into them love, knowledge, help, encouragement. And that together you would bring this great revival. Whatever we might have to face, Lord, and we're not sure. We don't know. We can't predict dates or anything like that. But it sure seems like we're getting close. So we ask, help us. Help us to be strong in your strength. Protect us against the evil one us to see many, many, many people come to Christ. <laughs> Prepare us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.